Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. I will be in Psalm 73 for the whole message. Psalm 73. And I'm going to read the whole thing for you. So, Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious to us. Make it more precious to us. May we value your word more than much fine gold. We pray, dear Lord, that by your spirit you would 
Teach us what you have for us in your word. That we would have ears to hear. And dear Father, build us up in our faith. Help us to be doers and not hearers only. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I probably first heard the word when I was in college in the early 2000s. If I didn't hear it in an evangelism class, I certainly heard it in the philosophy class. The word was deconstruction. We Deconstruction is, is, is a word that goes along with postmodern philosophy. And so I, that's why I definitely know I heard it in philosophy class. Back then, it wasn't something that you hear all the time, but now the word deconstruction is used frequently. Um, and you even hear it on cooking shows where they're going to deconstruct something. And, and it's amazing to me that this philosophy that people in academia have studied for years has now come down to the point where we're using those philosophical terms even in popular cooking shows that you can watch on Netflix. Um, deconstruction, you can give a technical uh, definition of it, but that's not necessary for our purposes today. Deconstruction, the idea is it's a, it's a critique of tradition, or better, an attack on tradition. And it doesn't just leave it there, but just like on the cooking shows, when they deconstruct the recipe, they completely tear apart and rebuild it again. So deconstruction is really revolutionary, especially when it comes to politics. It started as, as a literary critique, uh, but just like other philosophical ideas, they tend to spread and branch out into other areas as well. And so deconstruction is, is a more known term now. Um, you hear, as I said, you hear it more frequently to the point where now people who are grow up in church, going to church all their lives, will say, I'm deconstructing my faith. In the early 2000s, we call, they called it deconversion, and you could, this was in the height of the new atheist movement with um, Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and those kind of guys, um, Christopher Hitchens. And you could go on web pages and upload your deconversion story, your, your rejection of Christianity testimony uh, that was popular at the time. The old word that Christians have called it for centuries is apostasy. This is what happened to Asaph, the author of the psalm, or, or it nearly happened, and that's why I entitled today's message, Almost Deconstructed. Look with me at the first couple verses. Now, he, he starts off good, and I, I, I get the impression that he's saying this from the very beginning because some of the things he says are shocking and worrisome, and he wants to let you know at the beginning, I know God is good. And that's why he says, truly God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. He, but he's discovered that along this journey, that God is good. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. We've all had those times before when we've almost slipped. You know, your leg goes like that and you catch yourself. I have those frequently because I'm a klutz. But we've all had those. I, I don't think that's what Asaph means, although later when he talks about the wicked, the kind of slipping that he's talking about, if you read the rest of the passage, the kind of slipping he's talking about is that slip where you fall and you're on the ground before you even know what happened. And it's worse than that, as Jonathan Edwards describes in his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and Jonathan Edwards actually used Psalm 73 and verse 18 in that famous sermon. Jonathan Edwards describes this as a slip on the precipice of a cliff. So it's not that you're just going to fall and hurt yourself. That would be bad enough. But you're you're going to fall so as that you slip off the cliff and into oblivion. That's where Asaph was. That's where he found himself in regards to his faith. He says in verse 3, he explains why it was that he was in this precarious position. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he's going to, in the next few verses, describe the prosperity of the wicked that he saw. He's really wrestling with the problem of evil. In other words, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? This problem has caused many a person to slip. Especially in in the face of those personal difficulties yourself. Now this, he's facing a particular trouble, a specific problem with evil. That is, God seems to be blessing the wicked. And here Asaph is struggling. We're not sure if verse 14 actually is Asaph speaking here. But no doubt he felt like this. He says, for all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's facing affliction, and what he sees the wicked having is completely different. So here, and I'll give you the outline. Number one, we're going to, we're going to look at facing the temptation that's in the first 15 verses. Then number two, we'll consider his visit to the temple. That's in verses 16 to 17. And then finally, we'll consider his thoughts from verses 18 through 28. He was in a very precarious position. He had nearly slipped. He had nearly lost his faith. And it, This is one of the reasons this is important is because Asaph wasn't just any old Joe. Asaph was actually one of the chief musicians. He was a Levite. Uh, The tribe of the Levites was set apart by Moses, set apart by God, 
even better, to be the people who would care for the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was their job to tear down the tabernacle and to transport it as Israel was going through the wilderness until they got to the promised land. When David had decided that he was going to be a, build a temple, a permanent fixture for God, the Levites suddenly wouldn't have a job. They don't need to move the temple around anymore. So David, inspired by God, came up with a plan to give these, these Levites different duties. And the du- one of the duties was music. And Asaph was a, leader in, a music leader in the temple, in the tabernacle. That was his calling, his vocation, his job. So this is similar to a minister of the gospel slipping and falling. But it's not just ministers of the gospel who can end up in this precarious position. We're all susceptible to this. We're all susceptible to being tripped up by the problem of evil. Um, and, and many of us know people who seem to have slipped. And so my hope this morning is that this message will encourage you if you are, if you find yourself in a similar position to Asaph, especially young people. Because right now is the period in your life where you've been raised in church, you've been going to church all your life, you've heard the gospel preached all your life, and now it's the, you're dealing with the tension of trying to make your parents' faith your own faith. And this is one of the, when people are young, is one of the times in their lives where this becomes a very real temptation. And even in our church, we've seen young people have slipped. And so I hope this message will encourage you. I hope that this also equips us when we know people who are slipping, that the things we read of in Psalm 73 will help help guide those who are in this danger. So let's, let's look more deeply at the temptation that Asaph faced. In verses 4 through 15, he describes the wicked. Now, I think that he probably, this is his perception. I don't think the wicked have it as good as what Asaph says that they have. I think he's viewing it through his trouble, viewing it through his pain, and he sees how much easier they have it. He says in verse 4, they have no pangs until death. This seems to speak of the idea that they, they, they die quickly or suddenly, not slow and lingering. In, in the ancient times, apparently, from what I've read, that was the ideal death. You didn't want a, a lingering death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, today, being fat, we look down on that. But in that time, being fat meant you were wealthy and you had, enough, had plenty of food to have. So these guys were wealthy and healthy. They're... Verse 5 says, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. These wicked people seem to be escaping all the troubles of life. We, we see that, I'm not necessarily calling these people wicked. In fact, I'm not calling them wicked. But if you remember back to 
when Hurricane Katrina stuck, struck New Orleans. Every time after that happened, if the New Orleans Saints played, the, the story of the game was how this team rebounded from that terrible tragedy. I always had a hard time buying that, that these multimillionaires really had that much of a hard time. The, the, real, the people that really suffered, the people that really struggled, the people that may have not even overcome are the people that, that lived in that ninth ward where I doubt any of the New Orleans Saints lived. They escaped that trouble. And I think this is what Asaph is seeing here, is that it's, it's not that the trouble didn't affect these wicked people, but because of their wealth and their position of power, they were pretty much able to escape by without much trouble at all. In verse 6, their pride is a necklace, violence covers them as a garment. It seems as if they're wearing their evil deeds on themselves in pride and arrogance and showing them off. There's no shame there. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Um, they scoff with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. And then in verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I love that picture of their tongue strutting through the earth. Uh, I, it's not literal, obviously, but they're, what they're doing is they're speaking against heaven. They're, they're scoffing against God. They're preaching against him. And that message is having influence all over the place. What message are they preaching? I don't really know, but they're probably preaching that you don't have to live righteously to be wealthy and healthy because they're the examples. This, this really was a great influence. Now, verse 10, if you look, uh, most of your translations will say something about a probable reading because the Hebrew is really unclear. So they're giving you Estimated the best guess. Uh, the other issue in verse 10 is who, is who is this referring to? His people. And from the best I can gather, what is happening here is these are the people who are responding to the message of the wicked. Maybe even some of the righteous people who have put off righteousness and decided they'd rather have prosperity than this difficult pursuit of holiness. And so they, they join in with this. And they, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't need... And the, the reason they can say this is because they don't see God acting. If God were just, then he wouldn't be giving all this wealth and prosperity to the wicked. He'd be giving it to the righteous. So obviously the conclusion is God doesn't hear, God doesn't know. Then in verse 13, again, this is, you've got to deal with, is this Asaph speaking or is this the wicked people speaking? My understanding is it's, we're still dealing with those wicked people who are following the preachers of wickedness. They say, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Righteousness and holiness, it's not worth the struggle. 
is what they're saying. And finally, and this clearly, verse 15, is where Asaph speaks. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And right here we see where Asaph, he was in danger of slipping because he envied the wicked. He saw their prosperity. But here we see him stop and say, I, I couldn't dare say that. It would be a great betrayal. This is probably the beginning of Asaph's repentance from going down that road. He was, he was headed down that road because he sees the prosperity of the wicked. And this is where God's grace finally grabbed his heart and stopped him. And instead of slipping, we see in verse 16 to 17, that he visited the temple. He says here, but when I thought how to understand this, he's, he's stopping to think about it. He sees this is a great riddle. This is a great difficulty, and he's not ready to give up on faith and righteousness and holiness yet. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. He discerned the end of the wicked. This really, this verse 17 is really what attracted my attention to this psalm. I asked myself, what was it that he saw at the tabernacle or the temple that made him discern the end of the wicked? Maybe someone was there teaching the law. Maybe, maybe he saw the sacrifices, the priesthood. There's so many lessons that you could learn from the tabernacle. I mean, there's, there's books written about it. We've had Sunday schools about the lessons from the tabernacle. There's so many things that you could learn there. How did, he, how did he learn this? I think the answer is in the rest of the psalm. Because in verses 23 to 24, he focuses on God's presence. You see, the tabernacle and the temple, both, were symbols of God's presence. Now, God was there, no doubt about it. But even Samuel recognized when he built the temple that that temple cannot contain God because he's infinite. There's no way any human being could ever build a building that would contain or wrap God up. And we have all of God trapped right here in this little rectangular building. There's no way anyone could do that. I think what Asaph saw is that God was present with his people, but he's not present with the wicked. And he saw how much better that was. Where is God's presence today? Of course, the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, but he was omnipresent then as well. It's not as if in the New Testament it suddenly changed. Yes, God is everywhere present. Where is God's special presence today like it was in the tabernacle and the temple in Israel? It's his church, his people. Yes, he indwells us individually, but he indwells us corporately. The new temple is the church of Jesus Christ. That is where God's presence is today. 
in this, this temple that he's building for his glory. And I think one of the things that we can learn from Asaph is he went to where the presence of God is. He went to church. That is where he began to recover from the precarious position he was in. He, he went to gather with God's people. And just as the tabernacle symbolizes God's presence in the Old Testament, the church symbolizes God's presence in the New Testament. We, we, see, this, we see this throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to take time to go there. I, I assume you, you understand and agree that this is the place where God is present. And it's good to remember that the church, the church is the people, but yet at the same time, the reason why this building is called a church is because this is where God's people gather filled with the Spirit, with his special presence here. There's a reason that the church building used to be called the house of God. We don't do that much anymore. Um, it's probably a good thing to get back to. <laughs> this is the house of God. This is the place where Christians ordinarily meet God. It's not the only place, but this is where we gather to meet God in his word, to meet God in his ordinance, to meet God in our prayers, to meet God in our praise. And this has an impact on us. You know, there's, there's only one verse really that says go to church, Hebrews 10, 25. And in that section, when it tells us to go to church, the reason why we're supposed to go is to keep each other from falling into sin. One of the reasons that we could slip is if we stop gathering together as God's people. Not only do we have the means of grace, but we have one another to encourage one another, even all the more as that day draws near. This, this is vital to our, the church is vital to our relationship with God. It's not, it's not an optional thing you want to do if you want to be a super saint. Without the church, we would surely fall. Without God's word being preached, without the ordinances, without prayer and praise together, all of us would fall. Now some may say, well, the problem is the church is the problem. The reason I'm slipping from my faith is because I see all you hypocrites here. And when I hear that, one of the things that makes me think is it, it gives me a desire and a drive to live a holy life so that I'm never one of those people that cause someone else to stumble and slip and lose their faith. The other thing we have to remember is when people say the church is filled with hypocrites, what they mean is we don't practice what we preach. So two things about that. Nobody practices everything they preach. Even unbelievers have standards. They don't live up to them all the time without fail. They, they fall short of their own standards. So we're no, in that sense, we're no different than them. So we, we, we can say that. But we also need to realize that what we preach is not that we're good people and that's why everything's okay. We don't preach our righteousness, but we preach Christ 
and him crucified. We, we preach that sinners can be saved by grace through faith alone. In order to be a member of our church, you have to be a confessed sinner. We won't accept you if you're not a confessed sinner. You have to say that you are a sinner in the eyes of God. You, you have to confess that from your heart or, or you're not worthy of being a member of Two Rivers Church. We, we recognize that we're sinners and, and a lot of times the reason why people will say the church is filled with hypocrites is because we forget the gospel and become self-righteous and think we are good people when in reality the only goodness that we have is from Christ. But the church is critical to keeping someone from slipping. And so we, we need to consider that. Now, let's move to considering Asaph's thoughts. Um, in verse 17, he said that he discerned their end. That, in other words, he discerned the end of the wicked. So in verses 18 through 22, he, he discusses the end of the wicked. These are his meditations on the end of the wicked, if you could say. He says in verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. The wicked people, they're, in, they're not just prone to slip. Their footing is not on solid ground. They're, they're unstable. They could fall at any moment. This is Jonathan Edwards' point in the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Anger God, that the only thing that is keeping anyone out of hell right now is the arbitrary will and the grace of God and nothing else. That is it. If you're not in hell today, it's because of God's matchless grace. And that's the only reason. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. These, these things can happen to the wicked people temporally, in other words, in, in the here and now, but they don't always do that. We can think of wicked celebrities who lived, lived a long life and... and and died with all of their wealth and all the prosperity that they had. So it's not necessary that this ruin and destruction and being swept away by terrors is going to happen here and here and now. I think deeper than that, Asaph is discerning the end of the wicked in the sense that they're going to be ruined, destroyed, and swept away eternally in hell. And that answers the problem. You see, these guys, these guys are doing well on earth. Everything seems rosy for them. They don't suffer at all. They have plenty to eat, more than enough. They, they waste food. Um, they, they, wear their violent, they wear their violence on their clothing. But eventually... They're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They will face their doom. There is judgment. God doesn't, God doesn't bring judgment temporarily always. And so when we see the wicked 
prosper. We shouldn't despair that God isn't doing anything. No, they're, they're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Now, sometimes people who struggle with the problem of the evil, you know, we Christians will answer that, well, there will be suffering for all eternity, and then all of a sudden they go, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. If God is good, why would he send anybody to hell? It's like they want, you want it both ways, you know. The only option is that God can't allow evil, and if God allows evil and then punishes evil, then that's not right either. Um, so you will hear those things, but the answer is, part of the answer is that these wicked people prospered here on earth, but will suffer forever. In thinking on this, Asaph came, speaks of, I think, his repentance in verses 21 through 22, when he says, My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He was acting like an animal before. He sees what the foolishness of what he was saying before he visited the temple. He sees how utterly foolish it was to say anything of the sort. Friends, if you're here today apart from Christ, you are one of those wicked who are in a slippery place. And the only way that you can be rescued is through the Lord pricking your heart and you realizing your brutish and ignorant ways that you're acting like an animal and that your only hope is found in the wisdom and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to turn to him today. This will be your end apart from Christ. You may have it good here, but it will be suffering for eternity apart from Christ. Next, he, he talks about, um, he meditates on God's presence in verses 23 and 24. Uh, I think this is really what he learned at the tabernacle. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. This is Asaph speaking. Asaph is continually with God. He's continually in God's presence. God holds his right hand. Remember, he was, he was about to slip. And how, how precious it is that God is holding his hand. Uh, the reason Asaph didn't fall the reason he came to his senses is because the whole time that he was doubting, the whole time he was struggling, the whole time he was slipping, God was holding his right hand. And God's not like you or me. You know, if we're walking across an icy parking lot and holding someone's hand, we can both be dragged down. But as Asaph points out later, God is a rock. God is immovable. God is all-powerful. And his, he will not let his children slip. He will hold their right hand. You may feel the tug, the temptations that Asaph felt, and you might feel like you're just about ready to plummet over the cliff into destruction, but God will, is holding your right hand and will not let you go. He says that you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. This is where Asaph begins to 
He talked about the end of the wicked. Here he's transitioning to talk about the end of believers, the end of the righteous. He says, he uses the word glory. Glory is a word that describes God. And we share in his glory. And and when we are with him forever, we will share in that glory. We'll see his glory for what it is. This isn't, this is speaking of heaven and all of its glories. The, the most precious, glorious thing that we will do is see our God face to face. And Asaph sees that now as his end. He, and he comes to the conclusion that my suffering now is worth it all. Because in the end, I'll have glory He says so much in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. At the beginning of the psalm, he was desiring the wealth and the health, the blessing of the wicked. He wasn't desiring holiness and righteousness. He wasn't desiring God. And now everything's changed because he meditated on the end of the wicked, sees their end and sees that prosperity is only temporary. And now he sees that he's going to get the best thing of all. That is God himself. And so his whole, all his desires have changed. And then in verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, I might, I might die. But God is the strength, or literally the rock of my heart and my portion forever. There's two key words in there. One is portion. The idea is your lot in life. And remember, at the beginning of the psalm, he was, he was coveting the lot of the wicked. And now he's discovered through his visit to the tabernacle. Now he's discovered that his end, his portion, his lot in life might be suffering now, but at the end, he gets God. God is his portion, and he's his portion forever. The, the wicked only have their riches temporarily. He will have his riches forever. They will never end. And he concludes, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. This, this idea of being far from God. In, in the Old Testament, the nations were far from God because they didn't have a relationship from him. In the New Testament, it said that the nations will brought, be brought near to God. The reason this happens is because God the Son became became far off so that all who would believe would be drawn near to Jesus Christ. That is why we and Asaph can say, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. I pray and I hope that God's word as we've gathered together as God's people in his presence, will 
steal you, steal your spine in the day of temptation. And that you'll, that you'll discern the end of the wicked. And that your desire will to be with God forever. That you'll see the lot of believers, the lot of our life is eternal life with God. And that will keep you from slipping. And those of us, whether we're believers or not, we're, we face that temptation. I pray God's word will keep us on solid ground. Hold us up when we're, when we're slipping. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we give thanks to you again for your word. And we do pray that you would meet us here today. That you would give grace through the preaching of your word. That you would save any, any of those who are on slippery places. We pray that you would bring to their senses those who are about to slip. Help us all to face this temptation when we see the wicked prosper while we suffer. We pray all.